It was really, really fun, just personally, to work on climate via art and painting and trying to think about how to, to use that as a way to talk to people that might not otherwise think about climate. Welcome to another episode of The Net Zero Life. I'm your host, Nathan Svee, and it's my job to peel back the lessons, ideas, and philosophies from leaders working in climate so you can live a sustainable life that brings the world closer to net zero emissions. On the show today is Diana Burkett-Rakow, the Senior Vice President of Sustainability and Public Policy at Alaska Airlines. Diana leads Alaska's government affairs, ESG, sustainability, communications, and community engagement teams in Seattle, San Francisco, Alaska, Hawaii, and Washington, D.C. Together, those groups are responsible for advancing Alaska's businesses, supporting the company's employees and local communities, and managing its environmental and social impact consistently. Diana most recently led development of the company's 2025 ESG goals and five-part path to reach net zero by 2040. She's also responsible for Alaska's venture arm, Alaska Star Ventures, which is focusing on identifying and enabling technologies to accelerate that path. She also chairs the board for the Alaska Airlines Foundation. Diana joined Alaska Airlines after two decades in healthcare, public health, and government service. She holds a bachelor's degree from Harvard University and master's in public administration and public health from the University of Washington. Go dogs! She also serves on the boards of Philanthropy Northwest, Pacific Science Center, Bay Area Council, and Seattle Metro Chamber. I am super excited for the show and as you can tell during the episode I say I love a lot because I truly do love Alaska Airlines. They are one of my favorite airlines to fly. They're Seattle based. They're very focused on sustainability and their culture permeates everything they do. As we discuss on the show, Alaska has been reporting their carbon footprint since 2009, so they're kind of experts in this space. They're committed to net zero via the climate pledge and they also have a 5-year plan to reduce their carbon emissions. Diana is an authentic leader who spends her time thinking about how to maximize her impact in her role, as well as Alaska's impact across the greater aviation industry. She thinks about climate equity and justice, and we get into that during the show as well. We talk about the weeds of carbon accounting, including TCFD, SASB, CDP, which was super fun for me. And we discuss her climate origin story and how she ended up in the role she's in today. Please enjoy my conversation with Diana Burkett-Rakow, Senior Vice President of Public Policy and Sustainability at Alaska Airlines. Diana, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm super excited. I believe, I could be mistaken, I don't have everything memorized, but I think you were the first corporate sustainability leader on the Net Zero Life podcast. So I'm super excited to, to dive into that. Wow, I feel honored. And it's actually my first podcast. So uh, hopefully I'll live up to your standards. Yeah, I'm sure that you, I hope I live up to your standards uh, to get the privilege to interact with you. I thought a great place that we can start, and this is also getting a theme here at the Net Zero Life, is your LinkedIn background banner. And for those people who can't see it, it is a young woman, super determined with headgear and goggles and um, wrist braces on a bike, looking like she's ready to take over the world. So I'd love if you could tell us about that. Yeah, I love it that you asked about that. Um, so uh, I have been at Alaska Airlines for about five years, but um, before that, I uh, led public affairs and marketing for a company called Group Health. Um, I sort of feel like my career started at Group Health, or I grew up um, professionally there. But um, 
but at the end, I was leading public affairs and marketing, and um, I have worked on one ad campaign in my life, um, and it was at Group Health. It was sort of about two years before we sold the company, and we w- wanted to kind of reinvigorate our brand with a bold, fresh approach that talked about health in a different way. And so the campaign um, sort of essence or tagline was, this is healthy. And all of the images were things that you don't think of necessarily as like doctor's office or um, treatment oriented, but were living life to the fullest. And so this is healthy included, you know, um, families getting together or weddings or parties or, you know, hiking or what have you. And this um, little girl was actually one of the ad creative um, pieces that was out of home and elsewhere. And she just, um, you know, she's going to go over a bike jump and she might fall over and she might, you know, break her arm at some point, but she's going after life with full zeal. um, And, you know, no matter what comes and just, she in particular really resonated with him and so, or with me. and, And so I'm, Super glad to still get to see her every once in a while on my LinkedIn profile. That's awesome. I think it's super inspiring as well. And you're setting me up for success here because you mentioned public affairs at Group Health. uh, And now you are the senior vice president of public affairs and sustainability at Alaska Airlines, which is also relatively new, right? Congratulations. I think we'll kind of talk about that as well. When did sustainability come into your foray? Well, you know, I was actually reflecting on this because I've heard you ask, um, other guests a similar question and there's like sort of three maybe snapshots obviously working on um, a carbon intensive sustainability in terms of a carbon intensive business as carbon intensive as aviation is you know just in the last five years um, and even during that time I think the world has evolved pretty tremendously in terms of how we think about it but the youngest kind of memory that I have getting really interested in the issue and, and what was really going on in the climate was, um, I forget how old I was. I was probably in like third or fourth grade. And now climate envoy Kerry um, came to speak to my, uh, I grew up in Boston. So he was our local senator and he came to speak to our class about acid rain. And um, it was really fascinating to think about like what was actually going on behind the atmosphere of this thing that we thought was super normal that was rain, but there was actually something else happening in the climate that made it not just super straightforward um, and not good for uh, the environment. Um, I ended up doing science. And so um, I've always been in science in one way or another and uh, sort of science as it impacts society um, and kind of where that ultimately went um, was more of a public health focus uh, for me and ultimately working at a healthcare company but the more I worked in healthcare, the more I realized that it wasn't actually, it kind of relates to the question about, you know, that, that little girl in the ad campaign. It wasn't so much about the services that were delivered. It was about, it's really about the environment that's created to enable someone to live a healthy life that then determines whether or not they need healthcare services It with greater intensity later on. And those upstream factors can include, you know, housing, education, the zip code where you're born, nutrition, certainly the environment, um, and more and more, you know, climate and health are intersecting, climate and equity are intersecting. And so there's, even though, you know, and I I love learning and I love sort of learning new technical things, even though that part has really evolved, there's sort of a consistent thread there um, that has to do with kind of how our ecosystem can support 
healthy life or not. Yeah. Um, and well, when you mentioned climate equity, which I'd love to get into, but did you say that it was John Kerry, the one who's, that came to speak? Yes. Yeah. And so he was already, it's interesting because I don't know his background. He hasn't decided to come onto the show yet. Um, but I knew the climate czar thing is relatively new, although I, you know, czar gets Yeah. Canceled. So this must have, so, no, but he came to talk to, acid, to, talk to us about acid rain like 35 years ago. Oh, well, good to know that he's been on the, the train for a while um, between him and Al Gore, right? So climate inequity, something that I'd love to get into, and maybe now is the time to do it. I also think that we'll kind of launch off of um, you talking about the different health outcomes, right? And how like the doctor is kind of the end result, right? You want How do you prevent that upstream? And I think we'll use the same framework for talking about sustainability. But climate inequity, what does that look like for, for you? How do you think about that? How do you think about it in terms of Alaska Airlines? Well, it's a great question and a big topic. Um, I'll give you one example that is certainly top of mind. You know, a lot of the climate impact of aviation happens at 35,000 feet, but some of it happens at takeoff and landing. And so thinking about who are the disproportionately impacted communities that live around airports and how are we making sure that ultimately climate solutions work for them um, as well as for the, you know, our total footprint and, and all of those things. And, um, and in many cases, the communities that live around airports are disproportionately impacted, not just by environmental factors, but by other economic factors. Um, and so thinking about how do we take their reality and, um, uh, uh, situation into account when we're thinking about our solutions, I think it's really important. Totally. Let's get into the the nuts and bolts of uh, sustainability at Alaska Airlines. So in particular, I'm just going to read this off uh, from my notes. But so when Alaska promoted you, they said um, it's part of in a move that underscores the airline's commitment to lead the aviation industry with ambitious and measurable goals to protect the places we fly and support the people and communities we serve. Amazing, super inspiring. I'd love to talk about governance and strategy, which um, I think for many people listening might not be the most, uh, it, it, it made off the bat not seem as exciting, um, but we've done episodes about decarbonizing aviation beforehand and I, where I think will be super interesting. So part of our season three theme is this idea of the individual versus the collective. And, and the example I like to give is if you put solar on your house, right, you are decarbonizing or, or making power into your home renewable and that's one action right but if you help decar if you push solar policy or renewable policy then you can decarbonize your whole neighborhood your whole country etc right so it's an example of like a collective action that has much more um much more impact and i think that helps we you know we often talk about what is my responsibility right should i not do this should i not do that corporate governance and strategy is in that same way is that kind of upper echelon of action where, as I understand it, we can set up policies and procedures and strategies to make sure that you know we don't just have the one action that removes carbon, we've got it in perpetuity. So um, feel free to jump wherever you want. I've got a number of questions I wanna dive there, um, but, uh, and maybe a first starting point is, you know, why did Alaska decide to add it as a new pillar? Um, what does it look like for them? How has it changed? And then there, everything else they're in. Sure, there is a lot there. So I'll start someplace and then you can, um kind of take it where you want. So 
Um, Alaska's actually been, like, we've been reporting our climate impact um, since 2009. Uh, all of those reports um, since 2009 are actually available on our website, and sometimes it's fun to go back and sort of just see how much this field has evolved. Today, um, and more, you know, in the last couple of years, I think during that time frame, we also kind of in the bigger picture moved from talking a lot about corporate social responsibility and certainly environmental impact, but sort of that broader CSR term, sustainability became more of a term. And um, a lot today, you'll hear the term ESG. Um, what I like about ESG is it actually is literal. It's G stands for environmental social governance. Um, and in, in the way that we think about sustainability, it's not just the environmental portion. It's how do we actually take care of sort of all the stakeholders that depend on us and run a responsible company as it relates to the environment, as it relates to um, our people and our communities, and then as it relates to ultimately also our owners and our guests. And so that's sort of where I start. And I think a lot of that is not really new at Alaska at all. I mean, one of the things that first resonated me with, with me when I first came to the company was um, that we talk about, we have this circular uh, saying where it talks about our four stakeholders. And the reason it's a circle is that none of them is on top, but we talk about managing the company in a way that's responsible to all four stakeholders. And those are employees, guests, um, communities, and owners. And the formalization of, so that's not new. What is newer is the formalization of a really specific um, set of priorities, including prioritizing um, DEI and some of our metrics around advancing racial equity and uh, our climate journey and the path to net zero. Um, and so the, on the one hand, ESG is very literal, and it's, but it also is this sort of big picture concept of running a business responsibly. But because it's been driven in, in some part by the capital market, wanting to ensure that companies are stewarding their long-term value and, you know, big investors have started to see long-term value as including stewardship of environment and society, it, it lends toward a much more specific metrics orientation. Like, are we actually measuring things that are material to our business and then transparently disclosing the progress and the results? Um, and I think that's also really satisfying because the the act of, you know, tracking data and managing to data and reporting data responsibly, and I think that's also sort of part of the governance piece that you're talking about, um, it does drive change. Uh, and, you know, the, there's sort of the adage, what, what you measure is what you manage. Um, and I think that's true. Um, the last piece I'll mention is that sort of leaning into this over the last few years has also um, helped us think about where do you, where do we put accountability to these metrics in our own cultural systems and our own um, policies? And just two examples, actually starting in 2021, um, the uh, board ultimately through the compensation committee, but um, approved actually uh, having carbon intensity be one of the metrics that's included in our all-employee um, bonus program. So 10% of everybody's bonus is based on a carbon intensity metric. Um, we hit our target last year or, or beat our target last year, and we've got a new target for this year. Um, and then a portion of executive long-term incentive compensation is uh, related to DEI and in particular um, 
BIPOC representation and leadership ranks. And that one's more long-term compensation and at the executive level because, you know, leaders help determine how people are promoted and supported and hired, and it doesn't change overnight. Just an example of kind of how that governance has translated into some more specific policies. Yeah, um, lots of places to explore. We'll start with carbon intensity. It's something that I live every day um, in, in my day-to-day work. So you have a target to reduce year over year, and I think this is a great way um, to talk about kind of the Alaska's five-point plan. What is the plan to reduce that carbon intensity? Obviously, decarbonizing aviation is a tough thing to do. So I imagine, you know, maybe maybe you guys have a pathway to net zero already, um, and slash like I already know, hint hint that that you do in part, right? Um, but so how do you calculate the targets? What are the ways that Alaska is working to be more carbon in- uh, to be less carbon intensive and more efficient, and then eventually achieving net zero? Sure. Um, well, you kind of teed me up there. We did we did put together a five part path to net zero, and there's parts of it that we can control, and there's parts of it that we can't control, and we don't know all of the specifics of right now. So, the five parts just briefly are: first, operational efficiency; second, renewing our fleet with more fuel efficient aircraft; three, using sustainable aviation fuel; fourth, um, novel propulsion or considering, and it it's going to be in smaller aircraft. Um, you know, certainly for the foreseeable future, but considering electric or hybrid electric propulsion, and then ultimately carbon offsetting technology or carbon removal or direct air capture to close the gap to our targets. And that's really sort of, we've got some criteria around that. It's our last preference, but given how difficult it is to decarbonize aviation, um, it needs to be on the table as a strategy with high quality offset technology to make sure that we can close the gap to our targets. The things that we can control and kind of we can measure, you know, on a more granular basis year to year to reduce carbon intensity, um, a lot of them near term fall in the category of operational efficiency. So things like um, where possible, can pilots taxi using around an airport using one engine instead of two? When the plane gets to the gate, are we ready to plug in uh, what's called the preconditioned air and the ground power? So coming from the electricity at the airport rather than from the engine still running on the airplane. And then we're able to turn that um, all of the fuel burning engines off. So just those little tweaks. um, We also implemented last year, a new AI ML platform to help our dispatchers plan really efficient routes. And it shaves off time and time is fuel and emissions. But those things are, they're little tweaks. They're very significant, but they're small in terms of absolute numbers but they really add up when you're doing it over and over again, all across the system, all across the day and across the year. Um, The other big thing for aviation is one that we don't entirely control, and that is uh, sustainable aviation fuel. Um, Sustainable aviation fuel has sort of a range of carbon intensity reductions. It could be, you know, 50% of the lifestyle carbon impact of traditional jet A fuel, or it could actually be a 100% reduction or even carbon negative relative to jet A fuel. Um, And the reason we don't control it is, you know, the supply environment, the market is very immature. It it exists, the fuel is out there, it's certified, it's safe, you can drop it right into the fuel farm alongside traditional jet fuel, Um, but there's just not enough of it. And right now it's too expensive. And so we're also working, even as we're working those granular operational things on an everyday basis, we're also working on kind of on a bigger picture ecosystem level to try to figure out how to get that market jump started. 
um, start using it ourselves to send demand signals, um, but also work on public policy to make it a more mature and uh, scaled up market. Before we jump into SAF, and you know, one of the questions I want to explore there is, do we think that customers will pay for it today, right? So, you know, many airlines offer, you can offset um, your flight, but the difference in cost between that and SAF is something, you know, it's enormous, right? Um, because it can make totally. prices go up three, four, five times. Before we get there, I'd love to talk about how Alaska gets their sustainability data and what that process is. I think for many people, um, especially, you know, Alaska has been doing this since 2009. And so, you know, you measure what matters kind of thing. What does that look like? When are you gathering that data? How are you, what systems is it coming from? How do you then turn that data into E, S, and G data? I'm particularly interested in in the E part, but I'd love to hear about the S and the G. And then, you know, how are you reporting on that as well? Yeah, that's that could probably be a whole podcast. And uh, just to be sort of super transparent about it, I think we're on a journey to get better and better every year. Um, most of our, like 99% or more of our scope one carbon footprint comes from burned jet fuel. So the positive side of that is that it's somewhat simple to get burned jet fuel data. Um, we actually have to report it through other venues. It's something we track obviously very closely. The other sources of um, of emissions are either from our ground fleet, so um, burn fuel from ground equipment, or electricity from our facilities. We haven't yet started to report scope three, but those other categories are um, sort of the major areas of where do we use fuel or other forms of energy. We're actually working right now, and those those go through certain systems um, that you know are used across the company, and then we convert them into CO2 equivalents and uh, report them in, you know, various formats uh, through our voluntary disclosure and other frameworks. What we're moving to right now is actually developing an internal carbon management system that has an enterprise-wide carbon data warehouse and a dashboard that can be integrated into some of our management systems um, or, you know, management cadence on a monthly basis, let's say, to to show... Uh, at a more granular level or as granular as we can, uh, what's happening and to engage people really across uh, the operation in our intensity levels and our footprint. Some of it is just socializing those numbers and making sure that we all understand what they are and what they mean. And then some of it is tracking more granular kind of progress on specific initiatives um, and, you know, doing true performance management with that data. I would say, though, that, you know, getting more and more specific and more and more consistent about the data that we use and how we talk about it across the company is probably an opportunity for every large complex company and certainly is for us. So full disclosure for people listening, I work at a carbon accounting management platform, right? Um, Which can be thought of kind of as the SAP uh, of carbon accounting for financial accounting. And one of the things we run into when I talk to customers or potential customers is that many companies are building internal systems. And so the question that I'd love to ask is, is there a future? So one, are there are there platforms that support Alaska's need today um, or 90% of the need today or 80% or 50%? And then is there a future um, that you envision where there is going to be the SAP of carbon accounting um, or is it going to be more fractured where every company or, or most, as you said, complex companies are building their own internal carbon accounting software? Well, so let's just distinguish between the source data and the carbon accounting piece. 
Um, where I think we absolutely have to have uh, internal systems is to make sure that we're being super consistent and ultimately auditable on the source data. Um, and that, you know, right now we do third-party assurance for our um, uh, disclosed carbon data, but getting really, really crisp across the company about those numbers and making sure that we're all using the same numbers. We're certainly very confident in the ones that we disclose publicly in our reports, but part of it is just socializing and educating people on what those numbers mean and where they come from. I think your question about sort of the SAP of carbon accounting is actually a really interesting one, and I don't know that I know the answer. I, I certainly think it's going to be more in demand. I think companies just have to make sure that they're owning their own data integrity internally first. And then the carbon accounting part of it could come after um, and be well supported through something like what you're suggesting. Thank you again for listening to The Net Zero Life. The team and I love doing this and we'd be super grateful if you would consider leaving us a review, either on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Hit that follow button, hit that subscribe, give us a rating. It means a lot to the team and I, and it helps us broadcast our message to the broader community. So thanks again. Season three of The Net Zero Life is powered by Climate People. Climate People is a technology recruiting firm dedicated to decarbonizing the economy through placing mission-driven talent into climate tech careers. We focus on data, software, product, and user experience recruitment across all climate sectors. Whether you're a job seeker looking to use your skills for good or a hiring manager looking to build out your team of mission-driven engineers, Climate People can take care of your talent acquisition needs so you can focus on bringing the world closer to net zero emissions. We talked about, or I heard you mention third-party voluntary disclosures um, or voluntary disclosures. I'd love for you to tell me a little bit or tell us a little bit about, you know, which ones that Alaska selected and why and what that process looks like and uh, your thoughts on potential legal or uh, disclosures that required in the future. Is that going to be helpful, hurtful? Yeah, that's really great set of questions. Um, and, you know, I don't know that we've got the perfect answers, but I'll tell you kind of how we've thought about it. So, the most important thing to us is managing our data and, and using metrics in such a way that they can manage change. So um, our first priority is our own voluntary 2025 goals um, and you know some of those on the path to the net zero by 2040 and designing those metrics in such a way that they can be used to manage the business. Because that internal performance management is important uh, even before public disclosure. So then those goals are the ones that we report internally quarterly and, you know, in some cases we'll manage monthly. Um, but those are the ones that we then do our voluntary public disclosure on once a year through our own sustainability report. Um, and then there's a few other frameworks that we've started to use because they're often asked for as sort of apples to apples comparisons between companies within an industry. So SASB is a good example. We started to report for the SASB framework a couple of years ago. And that because we heard that it was important for folks that are looking at our data to have that apples to apples comparison. 
There's some examples, though, of where that data is actually not very useful to manage the company. And I'll give you an example. It's more in the S space. But two of the metrics on SASB's um, framework are, one, the percentage of your uh, company that's unionized or labor represented, and two is the number of days of strikes or walkouts. So we have you know, the highest kind of labor representation rate in the, in the industry, in the U.S. at least. Um, that's great. But do we manage that year to year or month to month? No, it just sort of is where we are um, as a company. And then the number of days and strikes of, of strikes and walkouts is pretty obvious. It should be zero, um, and especially in an, in an airline industry. And so I can understand how an outside stakeholder might want that data to kind of be able to assess something or sort of have a green-red you know, assessment, but it doesn't. So I'm happy to, to put that information out there, but it doesn't really help us. Because it doesn't help us necessarily be better on a regular basis, I wanted to do sort of as few of those as possible so that the, the, you know, whatever capacity we have can be focused on actually driving the work and not just putting numbers out there. So it really is our 2025 goals. SASB, um, we'll do a TCFD report this year um, because that discussion of climate risk and how you're managing climate risk is important. Um, and then we also uh, report to CDP and uh, DJSI. And so that's been sort of our suite um, right now, and I think, you know, based on where things are going, we're, we're going to report just or voluntarily continue to on our own internal goals because it helps us manage our business and be accountable and transparent. The rest of it, we'll sort of see where that evolves. In terms of the, the sort of legal or statutorily required, this podcast will probably go out after the SEC rule uh, comes out first on, on Monday. Um, I think we're all kind of anxious to see what that says. Um, I'll just say two things about that. One, I think, you know, it's not going to be new for us to disclose our carbon footprint. Um, and so uh, we're sort of, you know, it seems logical for us to do that. I think um, there's two things to consider. One is to make sure that we're just as consistent as possible across the industry and in how we do that. Um, and I think the second thing to consider is uh, there's so much um there is some uncertainty and variation in terms of how scope three is calculated and some real complexity in making sure that that data is clear. And so I hope that we start with scopes one and two, because I think that's more um, consistent, uh, verifiable, and then ease our way into scope three in a way that makes sense um, so that we just all are making sure that we're developing accurate and actionable data. Is Alaska calculating scope three data today? And then just for people who are listening who aren't familiar with scope one, two, and three, scope one, direct emissions, right? So when the airplane flies, it, it burns it, it burns airplanes, it burns fuel, um, scope two, electricity, and then scope three, we've got like these 15 categories that um, different emission buckets can fall into, and they're all part of the value cha- value um, chain struggling today, right? Um, so is Alaska calculating scope three today? We're not yet. Um, you know, we're we're pretty scrappy. We're a very, 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 very lean team. And so it's sort of that prioritization. We know that our major impact is scope one and two, um, and not even scope two, scope one, but we do also um, calculate scope two. And so we've really leaned into let's make sure that the scope one numbers are right. Um, and then let's make sure that we're putting our capacity against, uh, you know, decarbonizing and reducing the in- intensity where we can. Um, it is on the roadmap to figure out how we go about scope three. And we started looking at that a little bit, but um, 
you know, trade-offs like all, like all of us have. Yeah. I also think this is a great example of um, the debate of Scope 3, right? Which is a lot of people say without Scope 3, you don't get the full uh, the full picture. And I think that, you know, makes a lot of sense when you're talking to oil majors, right? Like you need to talk about Scope 3. But on the aviation side, it's so clear to me, like scope one, right? And scope two, to an extent, is so, so important. Alaska is committed to net zero. You've built a five-point plan that has goals, right, for carbon intensity, all within the the carbon calculations that you do today. Right. And so it can be a little bit of a misnomer, not maybe not misnomer, but incorrect assumption for people who are like, everyone has to calculate scope three because yes, you, you manage what you measure, but there's also signal and noise, right? You can have tons of noisy data that is completely useless. Uh, and I think this is a great example. Totally. And I, I try to be pretty practical about this stuff. I want to spend my time on the scope one and reducing the scope one. And that's, if we've got to make trade-offs, that's where I want to spend my time. hundred um, percent. So Alaska is committed to net zero in part through the climate pledge. Um, I'd love to, to uh, kind of uncover two things. I break up companies making commitments to net zero in four categories or reasons to. So I'm curious, kind of the history there, what was it like for Alaska? For me, at least how I think about it, you know, there's investor pressure, there's CEO vision pressure, there's customers, and then there's governments. In terms of Alaska, maybe it's a combination, maybe likely. I'd love to kind of hear that journey of someone said, this is a good idea, and then it coming into action. That is, I love, uh, I love your frameworks and um, I'm trying to think about which one we fit into, although I'm not really sure we fit clearly. So this is not a new thing for us, obviously, since we've been disclosing for, you know, almost 15 years, we had a set of goals that took us up to 2020 in terms of reducing carbon intensity and um, waste and other, uh, other um, metrics across ESNG. And so we started talking about as we were approaching 2020, um, how do we refresh those goals to be the next tranche? Um, and given how fast the world is changing, those goals had originally been put in place in uh, 2012, and then they were refreshed when we acquired Virgin America in 2017 um, to integrate the reality of sort of the new part of our business. Um, but man, right now, eight, 10 years, that seems like a really long time. So we decided to set this five-year timeframe that could be sort of more actionable. And beginning to set those goals, we started to ask ourselves, okay, what is most important to our business um, across ESG? Uh, what's sort of the complete picture? And so on the environmental side, we have goals around carbon waste and water, even though obviously carbon is sort of the biggest kahuna there. Um, and what it led into is a conversation about both kind of what are our short-term goals but where are we going ultimately since we can't solve this problem in aviation in five years? And Alaska's culture is one where we, we are very practical, we are very scrappy, we take goal setting or commitments unbelievably seriously. And so there is, we don't make goals just sort of frivolously because we make them intending to meet them. And not to say others don't, but the level of rigor that we're like, we need to know how we are going to get there in order to feel comfortable setting the goal was a little bit at odds with this idea that we might want to take a much bolder and longer term leap. So the way that, and our board was phenomenally helpful in asking us good questions about why would you do one or the other? What are the risks and benefits? And where we ended up, where we ended up was to do both because the long-term um, goal of uh, net zero by 2040 sets a vision 
allows us to set up that five-part framework, some pieces of which aren't a huge reality in, you know, the next three years, um, but allows us to set that long-term framework. And if we were going to set a long-term goal, we, we realized that we needed to be both responsible in terms of calculating those five parts and how much we thought each could get us so that we had some sense of the steps to get there and then set that goal. But to, to sort of counterbalance that, set these near-term goals that were very specific that are ones that we can manage to now um, and are things that we can control. And so it, it kind of came down to that, you know, governance philosophy of let's control what we can control, but let's also push ourselves to do the right thing and, and build a longer-term vision. And um, we're excited to be on that journey. So I don't know which category it fits into. Maybe we're a little bit of a conundrum. Yeah, no, I think totally fair. What as you're going through that process, were there any particular resources, services, books, podcasts, whatever um, that Alaska is reaching out to to help inform its uh, its strategy? I like to joke that you know financial accounting has been around for five thousand years. Um, you know, it was in the Old Testament, and carbon accounting and kind of the whole climate change thing is well, climate change thing we knew like 120 years ago ish at this point. Um, but the whole carbon accounting thing has only been around for 25 years, and so all of that like great data and goal setting is is much more difficult. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I, I might sort of speak to three uh, three categories. Certainly, the industry resources in aviation, both nationally and internationally, are really phenomenal because everybody's looking at this across the globe. And in some areas of the globe are able to be farther ahead than others, but um, it, it, it really is sort of unparalleled, I think, in any industry to be able to have shared learnings and, and learn from what, what are different people trying and, and then have um, international associations that can help um, bring that global perspective um, we were pretty lucky. Uh, a couple of years ago, we joined the One World Alliance, and um, One World w- is the first um, global alliance to set a net zero target and to be making collective commitments amongst the airlines. And it's a phenomenal community, not just because of that leadership, but from to learn from one another. So that was a resource. Um, another resource that we tapped into is Ceres, um, the NGO organization that you're probably familiar with, um, based on the East Coast, and they're working closely with capital markets as well as with companies to sort of reconcile the desires and realities of both along the decarbonization journey. And they did a bit of a benchmark for us, not just within the industry, but more broadly about where were some of our opportunities that we might not be um, recognizing as well as the the obvious ones that we can recognize. Um, And then the last thing we did is we actually surveyed our uh, employees and our guests, um, which is what we call our passengers. Uh, to understand what's sort of most on their mind in um, the environmental and social impact spaces. Uh, one thing that's interesting, this was two years ago, but one thing that was interesting when it came to our guests is that um, reducing plastic on board actually rated for many people above decarbonizing or reaching that zero. And it, you know, it actually kind of makes sense if you think about it because it's something you can see, feel, touch, action. And this other, this stuff, you know, man, decarbonizing aviation and getting carbon out of the air and eliminating jet fuel, like that is so big and also somewhat esoteric for many. And so I think what we came away with is that it has to be both because you have to be able to reach people where they're at and engage them in a conversation about changes that each of us individually can make and have that bigger picture commitment on the thing that maybe is 
most material um, in terms of ultimately our climate impact. So a couple of, couple of thoughts on that path. Yeah. Um, and kudos to Alaska, right? By eliminating plastic cups through the boxed water um, initiative is probably the best way to put it. But I'm obviously yeah, 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 yeah. That was that was pretty exciting, too. So we decided to do both. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Um, and it is truly amazing how zero waste circular economy is so in vogue right now. Um, and it's awesome. And also, I don't know, I, there's no hierarchy here, but it is interesting how it's like that is really resonating with like millions of people um, and seeing driving change and the the climate piece, the carbon piece is we're seeing like a little bit more um, ethereal and, and trying to, to implement that. I promised that we would talk about SAF um, and we are going to obviously run out of time. I'm sure we could go on and on, on and on. And I want to talk about it kind of in the perspective of the climate pledge. Um, we've gotten a, so climate pledge, three pieces to it. Um, there's reporting. And there's elimination and then there's like real carbon offsets and we've kind of we've gotten nerdy on the reporting we've talked about elimination through the strategic plan um although SAF is a part of that but also some people kind of qualify SAF as a carbon offset and so i'd love to kind of hear how do you think about paying for SAF versus paying for carbon offsets is SAF a carbon offset when you think about a real carbon offset you mentioned carbon removal and direct air capture there's a lot of questions happening right now um i just posted about it on linkedin what is a proper carbon offset? And so I'd love to hear how you and Alaska Airlines are kind of considering those two things today. Sure. And um, on the latter around sort of the right carbon offset, you know, we can talk a little bit about our criteria, but we're, we're still figuring that out. Um, we're, we're not quite there yet. On SAS, um, the way that I think about it, and I, because it makes a, the biggest carbon um, impact difference on a life cycle basis, I understand how people categorize it as, um, you know, or could consider it as an offset. The difference that that I see is it is fundamentally replacing the fuel that's burned in the engine. And it's in our operation um, day to day and it's in sector. And so it seems much more fundamental to me and therefore is prioritized above other carbon offsetting technologies because it fundamentally changes the way the operation runs. It fundamentally changes, you know, the energy infrastructure long-term if we're able to um, scale up the SAF market to much more carbon favorable um, or even carbon negative uh, alternatives. And I think the explosion of technology in that space is really fascinating. And I think especially if we can get some government support to help scale um, and, uh, and increase the speed of the market maturation, I think both, you know, is really exciting for the future. Um, so uh, that's what I'd say about SAS. On the um, carbon offsetting technology front, I think we we do, you know, we obviously have a press preference for things that are in sector, but, um, you know, we kind of look at the basic things that a lot of people look at in terms of something that's durable, um, something that truly offers additional benefits, something that isn't doing harm um, in other areas, um, certified. And uh, obviously, you know, there's a lot of people that know a heck of a lot more about that space than I do. I think we're so focused right now on the first couple of pillars uh, or the first couple of steps in our path, um, getting to a clearer carbon offset strategy or, or, you know, other offsetting technologies will probably happen uh, more like next year timeframe. 
and I'll just add, which is in line with um, the way things are supposed to go, right? It's it's report, eliminate, and then when you have things left over, then um, you know that's where carbon offsets can come play. And, and specifically, science based target initiative. I don't think that if you have a science based target, I believe you have to have ninety to ninety five percent elimination of your carbon prior to you can use true carbon removal, um, and that's per their like one point five degree pathway. I have a few more questions, and and then we'll wrap it up. So, um, and these are more focused on you and kind of your personal sustainability perspectives and journeys. And starting with, if you were not working at Alaska Airlines or if Alaska had solved its, all of its public policy and sustainability issues, what would you be doing with your time? Oh, goodness. I don't even know. Um, I've got two little kids and, and uh, do this work. So I don't really have a lot of extra time to think about what else I might be doing. I, um, I did spend some time uh, sort of outside of um, kind of maybe pre more professional career um, painting and actually thought about going to get a, uh, an MFA instead of, uh, instead of a public policy degree. So maybe I'd be doing that. Okay, great. I'm looking forward to the, the next NFT drop of your, your future paintings. Well, and actually, can I just add something? Yeah, that? of course. One thing that was really fun last year is um, we uh, installed a painting in our San Francisco lounge um, that an East Coast artist that I have known throughout my life did. Um, and she, in her last sort of couple of decades, has been really focused on climate and water in her painting. And it was really, really fun um, just personally to kind of work on climate via sort of art and painting and trying to think about how to to use that as a way to talk to people that might not otherwise think about climate. So the two can intersect. Yeah, totally. And I think that's Dr. Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson's whole thing. Like find what brings you joy, find how it's connected to the climate and then go share it with the world. Yeah. Who, when you hear the term sustainability superhero, who comes to mind? Um, that is a great question. I, well, this artist, Ann Neely is one that, that inspires. I, I almost want to sort of turn that on its head. Um, and this is totally cliche, but I do have a five-year-old and an eight-year-old and their willingness to look at things differently and be conscious of waste impact and the environment. Um, I just, in a way that like doesn't bring any preconceived notions, I think is pretty awesome. Um, and I kind of think that kids are our climate superheroes because that's who we're doing this all for. And um, they're going to create a better outcome for the next couple of decades. And it's our imperative to make sure that they're set up in order to do so, right? For sure. What is one book, podcast, blog um, that shaped your thinking around sustainability? You mean in addition to the net zero life? In addition to the net zero life. Everyone says that, you know, I so appreciate it. <laughs> but in addition to the net zero life. No, that's a great question. Um, I mean, one that's, uh, um, you know, on my shelf right here is obviously pretty traditional now, but the Gates, how to avoid a climate disaster. Um, and I'm sure a lot of people have said that too. One of the things that has, um, that I just thought was really helpful about that book is how clearly it broke down certain categories and really helped kind of educate in some pretty um, layman's terms about different technologies in a world, in a sort of ecosystem that can be incredibly complex. Um, so that's certainly one. Uh, and then um, the uh, the book, Let My People Go Surfing by the founder of Patagonia, I think just is a phenomenal example of how you integrate some of these things into um, 
company and individual culture and uh, certainly another important angle. That is, Let My People Go Surfing is on my list and continues to get pushed down by other books, but I need to bring it back up uh, and, and actually read it. Amazing. Diana, thank you so much for your time. Last question. If people want to get in touch with you, is there a good way to do that? Sure. The uh, Go see that awesome, uh, spunky little girl on the LinkedIn profile. Um, I'm on Twitter as well and uh, love following people that have ideas about how we move faster in the space. And um, there's just so many cool uh, technologies, as I mentioned, that are happening right now and so many cool companies and, and leaders that are bringing new options to the table. Um, I'm really optimistic uh, that we will get there. And um, certainly, you know, I'm humbled by the fact that Alaska has a long journey ahead. Um, it, it is, as you pointed out at the beginning, a very um, challenging sector to decarbonize. But I, I do believe in the economic and sort of societal benefits of travel and connection. And so um, I believe we simply have to, and, and not only the jobs that it creates. And so I, I feel like we have to get there and I know that we cannot get there on our own. And so, you know, all of these other leaders and, and uh, folks that are bringing new solutions to the table, um, I'm really grateful for because we're going to get there together. Well, we are grateful for you. Um, everyone should fly Alaska Airlines if they haven't. It's fantastic. Uh, and I hope that we get a chance to talk again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nathan. This has been great. Thank you again to Diana for joining us today. You can find her on LinkedIn, Diana Burkett-Rakow. That's B-I-R-K-E-T-T space R-A-K-O-W on LinkedIn. And on Twitter, uh, it's just Burkett-Rakow, B-I-R-K-E-T-T-R-A-K-O-W at Burkett-Rakow. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you want to get in touch with me or any members of my team, you can do so via all of our social medias by following at the Net Zero Life. Or if you prefer email, Nathan at the Net Zero Life works great too. As a reminder, everything I say is my own opinion. It is in no way reflective of my employer. It's also not investment advice or anything else that can get me sued. This episode was produced by Donnie Levitt, the original music composed by Mitch Bernstein from Climb On. Thanks again for listening. Until next week, I'm Nathan Svee, and this is the Net Zero Life. Zero Life.